0: We are in Luke 15, one through seven. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them saying, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost? until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on over his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my one sheep which I lost. I say to you that likewise, where will be more joy in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over the ninety-nine that. just pers- persons who do not repent, but who do show, who need repentance, no repentance. Praise you and thank you, God, for that parable. Amen. Amen. Yes, of course. Oh, yeah, <laughs> thank
1: you. Sure. Praise God. Uh, before we go to prayer, uh, I wanted to read you one uh, note that I received this week uh, from somebody else, someone else that we've been praying for. You know, I'm reminded often of the 10 lepers that Jesus healed and how many came back to say, thank you. Only one, right? And we don't, we don't want to be like those nine. We want to be like the one. And so I think it's important that we take the time when we gather together to worship that we acknowledge and thank God for the ways that he has answered prayer. This is a message from Tim Snyder. Uh, I cannot thank you, the church family, my personal family and friends across uh, the country enough who so faithfully have prayed for God to intervene on behalf of Renee and I. Prayers have been answered, lives have been forever changed, miracles have been made manifest, and most importantly of all, Our merciful God has shown that His mercy and healing power are, have been, and will forever be extended to uh, even the least of His children. There's so much more that I love and need to say and will most assuredly when the opportunity affords itself in the future, but please, for now, tell our incredible church body how honored we are and blessed beyond measure for their support. Uh, What I think means little, but God's book is filling Uh, with incredible demonstrations of the love they've shown for us. We love you all more than you'll ever know and look forward to getting back out for Sunday school and worship when God is ready. May his blessings be multiplied in the lives of our precious assembly. We love you all. Uh, So uh, I wanted to just read exactly what he had written just to uh, underscore for all of us that you know, oftentimes we get in the weeds, we get into the the everyday busyness of life, and we forget to look back on the ways that God has answered prayer. And it's important for us to remember that that is what's going on. And uh, so we look forward, of course, uh, to uh, the time when Tim and Renee will be able to return uh, to worship. And uh, we um, are just thankful for the way that God has given us what we don't deserve. And uh, many of you are a living testament to that fact, uh, even uh, from recent months. So, uh, let's go ahead and take a moment to uh, come before the Lord in prayer, and then we will examine what Scripture has to say about our Good Shepherd. Let's pray. Father, You are the most important being in existence. And if we were in that position, we probably wouldn't think about the little people, human beings, just normal folks like the ones gathered in this room today. But you're not like us, you're so much more loving and patient and kind. So so much more just truly and fully good than anyone else that we could ever meet or know. And so Father, this morning, we want to just take a moment to praise you for your gentleness and kindness and your goodness and your mercy. You have shown that so many times over the last couple of years, and even in recent weeks in uh, rescuing so many of our brothers and sisters from the clutches of death. Thank you for your healing power. Uh, thank you for the testimony of those who have faithfully gone on to their reward and for the testimony of those that you have healed so that they could be with us for longer. Uh, thank you for bringing Marianne back to us. Thank you for bringing Tim and Renee home from the hospital. Thank you for the way that you're sustaining so many others. Lord, we acknowledge that there are those in our church body who are still grieving. They're walking through the process of of piecing together life without someone who had been a part of that everyday life just weeks ago. And so, Father, I pray that you would be the God of all comfort to them and that you would meet them in that pain and show them that you understand and that you love them in spite of the... Uh, Difficult trials that you're asking them to walk through. And I pray that they would come to find that your word is true, that all things do work together for the good of those who love you and are called, and that ultimately all of this will uh, result in the conforming of your people to the image of your son. Lord, this morning we also want to remember our brothers and sisters who are doing ministry outside of the four walls of Indian Creek Baptist Church. We pray for Pastor Guy as he begins his ministry in Spain this week. I ask that you would give him fruitful uh, ministry among the saints there and that you would strengthen your church and that you would bring many to yourself through his ministry. Lord, we pray for the W family as they're ministering in another local church here in town today that you would uh, anoint uh, them with your, your power and your, your clarity, and that you would bring, uh, bring glory to yourself through them. Uh, Father, we think of the McMillans as well as they continue to labor faithfully in Mexico. I pray that you would uh, cause them to bear fruit and that you would uh, bless them with your presence and your power as they do what you've called them to do. Uh, Lord, we know that there are many others who are uh, connected to our body that you have sent out and deployed and uh, we pray that you, would, um, that you would just fill them with your Spirit and give them your joy. And this morning, I pray as we examine your Word, that you would change us by the truths that we read herein, and that you would send us your Spirit in, in, in your fullness, so that we might have fellowship directly with you, not through any other mediator, but through Jesus Christ, who shed His blood for us. Uh, Father, it's in His name we pray. Amen. In the year 2000, Kentucky native Wendell Berry published a novel that has since literally changed the lives of thousands of Americans. You may not have read this book, but it is that significant to so many. I first encountered this novel several years ago when it became the free book of the month on ChristianAudio.com. Always looking for a good deal, loving free books. I downloaded it, Uh, just excited to get a free book, but after listening to the whole thing more than once, I certainly got my money's worth. Uh, The book is called Jaber Crow. It describes the village of Port William, a fictional river town in rural Kentucky, through the eyes of the title character who happens to serve as the town's barber, the church janitor, and a grave digger. Jaber is a single man who'd grown up as an orphan several miles outside of Port William, and for that reason, and because he didn't have any family or marriage ties to anybody else in the town, he's able to take the perspective throughout the novel of a constant observer, sort of this perpetual outsider and as the town barber, he hears all the stories. He, he His time spent in, in church and at the cemetery gives him the chance to see people in their tenderest moments. And over the course of his long life, he grows to love this little town. Among other things, this novel is a critical commentary of some of the changes taking place in rural America throughout the 20th century. Uh, things that you and I might be tempted to take for granted or things that in Jaber's generation might have been taken as signs of improvement and advancement, he sees as threatening the very humanity of himself and his neighbors. For, for example, after, after he had been Cutting hair at his barbershop for several decades, a representative from the Department of Health shows up and tells him, you know, your, your shop, your barbershop is not quite up to code and you're going to need to make some improvements to the building in order to keep cutting hair. And Jaber shutters the business and moves out to a little shack by the river. Uh, Old timers would go out and visit him in his shack and they would uh, get their hair cut in exchange for a donation uh, to Jaber's haircutting ministry. Uh, The villain of the story, Troy Chatham, inherits a large farm from his wife's family and instead of continuing the the farming lifestyle that his father-in-law had begun years before, he gets greedy. He borrows money against the farm in order to uh, to buy tractors and equipment. He, He cuts down a grove of old growth trees in order to just make a quick buck and he loses everything in the process. But there's something else. Uh, more relevant to what we're going to talk about today that Jaber Crow observes. He watches as over the years technology and the so-called advances of modern civilization begin to permanently break apart human relationships. And maybe you've seen what he sees too. That when he was a young boy, few of his neighbors owned cars, most traveled by foot or by navigating the river, but uh, within... A few years, most people uh, bought a vehicle and and cars became more prevalent. So where kids used to be able to play in the street, vehicles were zooming by at 35 miles per hour or more. At one point, the interstate highway is constructed right along the border between two farms. So whereas those two families would uh, normally have been able to walk a few yards to each other's house, now it was easier to get to the big city than it was to get to their neighbor's house. The idea of neighborliness, of community, was rapidly losing its meaning. I wonder what Jaber Crow might observe if he had stayed alive into the 21st century. The same highways connecting two large cities separate neighborhoods. Television brings the world right into our living rooms, but few of our neighbors have even made it to the front porch. The internet connects us instantly to individuals half a world away, but it distracts us from the people sitting around our dinner table, right? We now live in a world where we are more isolated, more separated from our neighbors and our brothers and our sisters than we have ever been before. And even though it is robbing us in some respects from our very identity as image bearers, we are almost loving every minute of it. Here's the point. God's intention for us as his flock is far different from the life that we have in many ways chosen for ourselves. His intention for us is different from our own. We were not made to retreat into the technologically enabled comfort of our private lives. No, we were not made for isolation and self-sufficiently to be more connected to Hollywood than our members of our own household While we may wish to scatter, the good shepherd's intention is to gather his sheep." Over the last several weeks, we've been meditating on how the Bible reveals God as our good shepherd. We saw that he feeds his sheep. He takes care of our needs and he feeds us with the truth of his word. Ultimately, Jesus offers us himself. He says, my flesh is true food and my blood true drink. That is, the sacrifice of his life is the thing that gives us life. We saw that the good shepherd leads his sheep. We can't lead ourselves. The way is dark. The future is obscure. We need a shepherd. We need someone to guide us, and he does so. We saw that he knows his sheep. Each of us is known and truly loved by the good shepherd. He desires us to have a relationship with him. He understands our pain. He knows our name. He knows his sheep. We saw that last week he protects his sheep. He rescues us from the mouth of the wolf and the clutches of the thieves and robbers. He protects us even from ourselves by disciplining us. He protects us by sending under-shepherds into the local church to teach the word of God and to fulfill all these other protecting functions. And the point of all this is not so that he might use us for some greater end, not so that he might destroy us or devour us, but so that he actually might share himself with us as his flock. The good shepherd wants to gather his sheep so that he can share himself with us and have fellowship with us. We're going to see today that this reality lies at the heart of the Bible story at the heart of the story of the world, and that it is pointed, clear application for all of us today. And so what I'd like to do is just sort of take this wonderful truth that the good shepherd gathers his sheep and break it apart into four separate movements from the Scriptures. So here's movement number one. The purpose of our existence is to have fellowship with the shepherd. The purpose of our existence is to have fellowship with The shepherd. Think back to the very beginning of the Bible. God speaks to bring shape to the primordial world. He causes it to teem with life. And in the midst of this abundant paradise, he places a man. In chapter one, we're told that God created them, male and female, in his image. What a rich expression. There's so much meaning in that statement that he created the male and female in his image. But consider the implications. God's intention from the beginning was that one of the ways that we would reflect his image in the world was that we are relational creatures. He created the male and female, uh, two persons, not just one. Theologians call this the I-thou perspective of the image of God. Uh, We are able to recognize and appreciate and share life with other people in the universe. And and this is a reflection of God's image. He's eternally 3 persons persons in one Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the, the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit have had unbroken, perfect fellowship with one another from eternity past. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we're given an even clearer picture of God's intentions. After saying over and over, God saw all the things that he had made, and he said that they were very good, there's an abrupt shift in the pattern. And in Genesis 2.18, God speaks again, it is not good, that man should be alone. And Think about the implications of that assessment. Before Satan ever whispered in the ears of the woman, before sin entered the world, the creator surveys his work and makes a negative judgment. There is something about this state of affairs that is not good, something that has to be remedied. What is it? The man is alone. That's not good. I'm going to fix that. And so God creates Eve. Now, it would be a mistake to understand the creation of Eve as merely an origin story for the institution of marriage. It is that, and and I love being married. It's wonderful. But there's so much more that God is doing. What God was doing was fulfilling the design of every human being as a bearer of his image. We're designed to live in fellowship with God and with other image bearers. Mutual recognition and and appreciation of of these other image bears were made for this kind of fellowship. And then you get to Genesis chapter 3, and in passing, we're told that God actually used to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. So what this picture picture emerges is that, that the original design of humanity has always been to gather as a human family in the presence of the divine. That's his intention from the beginning. Like a good shepherd, God has always longed for us to gather together so that he might share himself with us. Or think about what happened thousands of years later in the ministry of of Moses in the book of Exodus. Some of you were present for our study of the book of Exodus, you might remember this. God sort of republishes the covenant arrangement that he had with Adam and Eve. He goes into greater specifics this time, and then he says that the expression of this covenant is going to be this wonderful tent of meeting, this glorious tent that's filled with gold and incense and, and, uh, and, and beauty, A primitive copy of the heavenly throne room where God's people, here's the intention, God's people are able to actually gather in the presence of God. And the picture is, this is going to happen one day in reality when God brings heaven to earth. The 78th Psalm describes this time in terms of shepherding. He led his people out like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. All, why? so that they might gather in his presence and have fellowship with the shepherd. This has been God's intention all along. It's the purpose of why we exist. See, the point of everything has always been that God might share himself with his human creatures as an assembled nation, as a gathered flock. That is the purpose of why we are in the world today. That's the goal. So let me just pause at this point and ask you, and I've asked you this before, but is the goal that you have for your life anything like the goal that God has for your life? If it is true that according to Scripture, God's intention for you is to participate in his gathered people and have fellowship with him and with one another, is that anything like the goals that you've set for yourself? I mean, we have all these goals. We, we, uh, we, we, we want to retire. We want to get the kids set up for success. We want to pay off the house. We want to get into the best college. We want to become a starter on the varsity team. We want to redo the kitchen. I mean, some of these goals are more important than others and none of them, many of them are not wrong in and of themselves and that's what's so pernicious about it. Many of them are commendable and even necessary. So what's the problem? Here's the problem. The problem is that these goals become ultimate goals, right? They take the place of something more important. Life becomes all about Money or possessions or power or success or a relationship. And and when we push that goal to the front of the line, everything else gets rearranged. And for some of you, if you would begin to realign, this is what would happen. If you would begin to realign your life's priorities to reflect the priorities that God has for you, this whole tangled mess that your life has become would begin to unravel. If you put God's goal for you first... All these other things would begin to fall into place much more easily than they are now. The point of our existence, the purpose of our existence is to have fellowship with the shepherd. Secondly, though, consider with me movement number two. The problem of sin has scattered the flock. The problem of sin has scattered the flock. Think about this, going back to the passages I mentioned earlier, most of us know what happened both in the Garden of Eden and at the foot of Mount Sinai. God's design was that we, we might gather around him in this unbroken fellowship with him and with other image bearers. He created the perfect conditions for such a reality to take place, but then sin charges in and it shatters the relationship and the sheep are scattered. Immediately in Genesis 3, we're told that after Adam's sin, when God took the initiative to have fellowship with the man and the woman in the garden, what did they do? What was their immediate response? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They wanted to run away. They wanted to be isolated. A few verses later, God explains to them that there would now be a perpetual conflict, a power struggle between human beings from that time forward, a conflict that erupted into murder in the very next generation. Sin begins to shatter or scatter the sheep. In, in the book of Exodus and following, the same thing occurs. The Israelites couldn't even make it one day. They descend into idolatry. God has to discipline them severely. Later, even the family of the Levites uh, gets into a bickering match with one another and a sort of power struggle, and God literally opens up the earth and swallows up a whole family of people because they just can't get along. Sin comes in and it scatters the flock in contradiction to God's intention. Sin in all of its various manifestations drives a wedge, not only between the good shepherd and his sheep, but between the sheep themselves. And this is why when God wishes to utter an indictment of his people, when he, when he wants to decry the poor shepherding of the people that he had called to lead, what does he say? He said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. This is what sin does. So just think about this for a moment. You think about what it's done Think about what sin has done to scatter you in your marriage, those of you who are married. Years ago, you met someone who truly captured your affections, and you saw them more clearly than anybody else. You saw all the things that made them wonderful. You saw them as this awe-inspiring individual. You were filled with gratitude and excitement and anticipation, and then you spent more time with them. In the best case, in the best marriages, that soaring anticipation and excitement sort of fades back into a settled happiness and contentment in the best case. In many cases, though, sin gets in the way. You begin to observe their faults. You start to notice their pride. Their selfishness screams at you. What's more, your own heart begins to whisper, telling you that you deserve more than this imperfect person, that they are holding you back. Sin comes in, drives a wedge between you and your spouse, and the sheep are scattered. Or think about what it's done between you and your children, those of you who have children. When they were first born, they were the epitome of human perfection. Even their desperate cries and their dirty diapers didn't stop you from thinking that they were the most perfect individuals on the planet. But then they got older. One day they tell you no, and the next day they hit you in the face or scratch you. (laughs) They start to bicker and fight with their siblings, and then at a certain age they start to notice that you have faults and they tell you what your faults are. And even in the most wonderful parent-child relationships, sin scatters the sheep. And there are many types of human relationships, but it seems as though we have to choose. Those that we are the closest to, the people that are the closest to us, they have the greatest potential to hurt us and harm us. Those that we can keep at arm's length or maybe are new, they aren't close to us. So we either have to have distance or we get harmed. That's the way it is. Now, this is a theme too often repeated in Scripture and history. God does a mighty work to gather His people, to invite them into fellowship with Himself and with one another. And then, through sin, through poor leadership, through greed and self-sufficiency, through pride and selfish ambition, the sheep scatter. And the results are as predictable in the spiritual realm as they are in the in the physical realm. Ezekiel talks about this in Ezekiel chapter thirty-four. Step one: the uh, shepherd fails in his duties. Step two, the sheep scatter. Step three, what's going to happen next? They become food for all the wild beasts. Lions and hyenas and wolves and wild dogs love to encounter a scattered flock. An isolated sheep is an easy meal. And our enemy, the devil, he's looking for those people. Isolated from the flock. This is why Solomon told his son in Proverbs 18, verse 1, whoever isolates himself... Seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Translation. If you, want, if you insist on being a loner, you're not thinking straight. You don't think you need anybody. If you think you can handle yourself without any help, God says, you're a fool. You've broken out against all sound judgment. You're not thinking straight. You are easy pickings for the enemy. Some of you have learned that the hard way. And some of you, perhaps... God forbid, or about to. Sin scatters the flock. Now, I I hasten to add that for a lot of you, it's not necessarily your sin that isolated you from the flock. Some of you are here and, and not somewhere else as a result of some harm that's been done to you. And we all understand that. We weep with you. And you may need to take some time to check us out before you're willing to make an official commitment to be a part of this flock take the time you need, you need some TLC, that's okay, but friends, don't, don't get too comfortable in that position. Don't take too long because whether it's your fault or not, the enemy sees a vulnerability and he is going to exploit it as much as he possibly can. You cannot survive that way for long. God's intention for you is still that you might be gathered together in fellowship with the shepherd and with the rest of the sheep in the flock. Don't let sin scatter you from the flock. Movement number one, the purpose of our existence is that you might have fellowship with the shepherd. Movement number two, the problem of sin has scattered the flock. But consider with me movement number three. The promise of Scripture is that the flock will be gathered. The promise of Scripture is that the flock will be gathered. One of the things that surprised me about this sermon series is just how many places in Scripture, as I've studied this over the last five or six weeks, how many places in Scripture refer to this idea of God being the shepherd with his sheep? And out of the dozens of places where this type of analogy is made in the Bible, a very high, very high percentage of those references actually uh, include in them a promise that while human shepherds fail and, and the sheep are being scattered because of sin, that one day the good shepherd is going to succeed and he is going to get the flock together and he's going to gather them in his presence. So for example, consider the 23rd chapter of Jeremiah. This is a passage we read together a few minutes ago. Uh, uh, Jeremiah Uh, speaking for the lord says i will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where i have driven them i will bring them back to their fold they shall be fruitful and multiply i will set shepherds over them who will care for them and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed neither shall any be missing declares the lord of course this promise is made around the time when jerusalem had been destroyed and all the nation of israel was scattered throughout the entire known world spread out away from the promised land and in spite of the bleakness of the present circumstances god's promise is firm and unmistakable he says i'm going to gather my flock i'm going to set shepherds over them that will take care of them and not one will be missing Writing around the same time, the prophet Ezekiel plays some of the same notes in Ezekiel 34. He says, Thus says the Lord God Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out, and I will bring them out from the peoples, and gather them from the countries, and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture. They shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. Fast forward to the final pages of the Bible, where we're told in the seventh chapter of Revelation that the Lamb Himself is going to shepherd those people who have been martyred for the sake of His name. In spite of the reality that We've strayed so far from our original design, in, in spite of the fact that sin has scattered our relationship, uh, shattered our relationship with Him, and scattered us from each other. In spite of the seemingly hopeless and unsolvable problems that our world faces, the day is coming. According to the Bible, the day is coming when the Good Shepherd is going to bring all things together, and He is going to gather His people to Himself in the new creation. When His original designs become a reality, and we gather around His his throne. And there is nothing better, nothing more wonderful than uh, that we should be gathered together in fellowship with our shepherd and that one day for all the redeemed from every tribe and every nation and every language, there is going to be this reality of a gathered flock before the shepherd. He's going to gather his sheep. It's going to happen. See, Jesus came into the world to be the shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep. And even though we stored up for ourselves that wrath and that condemnation and punishment that sin deserves, even though we could never rescue ourselves, he is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, and he is going to gather them to himself. We weren't seeking the shepherd, but he came to us. And like a compassionate shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one, Jesus took the initiative to pursue us when we were still his enemies, when we were wandering far from him, and he gave his very life by dying on the cross so that we would be forgiven and reconciled to God and have fellowship with the shepherd. This is the reality of Scripture. See, the root cause of all our problems is not that we feel bad, it's not that we're in poor health, it's not that we don't have enough money. It's not that someone's been mean to us. It's that we rebelled against the shepherd of the sheep. That is the root cause of our problems. We're his sheep. We belong to him. But we rebelled. And yet, because of Jesus, those who believe will one day gather around his throne and rejoice in the fact that they've been forgiven. And and every tear will be wiped away. And there will be no more pain, nor nor grief, nor sorrow anymore. And, And we'll be with him. No more suspicion, no more bitterness or broken relationships, no more missed opportunities to reconcile, no more family strife, no more bad blood. All will be forgiven, and every sheep washed white in the blood of the lamb. And we will live the way that we were made to live, in fellowship with one another and in fellowship with the shepherd. This is what John talks about in In 1 John, he says, when we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. As we move closer to him, we're going to move closer to each other as well. But the point is that this is the future for all who believe in Jesus. May it be soon. But friends, it also has implications for us in the here and now. Because while the purpose of our existence is that we would have fellowship with the shepherd, and 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 while the problem of sin has scattered the flock, and while the promise of Scripture is that the flock is going to be gathered one day in the new creation, consider with me our fourth movement from the Bible story. And that's this. The present church should reflect that future reality. The present church should reflect that future reality. That's One of the things that God wants us to do as a church, to reflect this future reality. Uh, Yes, we still deal with sin. Yes, the final gathering of the flock still lies in the future. But the church in the present, local churches like Indian Creek Baptist Church, ought to reflect that future reality in the here and now. So listen to this, Paul writes to the Ephesian church, for example, about the blessings that they possess in heavenly places in Christ. The blessings are are stored up in heaven for them, but they impact the way that the church operates now. Believers possess them in the present. He tells the believers in Philippi that their citizenship is in heaven. That Uh, Yes, they're sojourning on the earth, but they belong to another kingdom, a kingdom that that will be consummated in the new creation. And that reality impacts the way they live now. He tells the believers in Corinth that they're ambassadors for Christ. That is, these are subjects of King Jesus. And the church is kind of an embassy set up in the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of darkness to represent King Jesus to a world, living in rebellion, and the church family is sort of this embassy situated on foreign soil, and we are to reflect the kingdom to which we belong. And what I mean, friends, is that the family of God in Christ, each individual local church family is sort of like a frontier flock. We're belonging to the shepherd And we're out in the wilderness. And so when we gather in this symbolic sheepfold of this building together, when we get together on a Sunday morning for worship, when we get together in our community groups or in our equipping classes or in these other ways informally throughout the week, we are remembering together that there is a greater gathering that will take place just over the horizon in the new creation. That's what we're testifying to every time we get together in this church building. And so friends, here's what that means. When we swallow the bread and the wine, when we celebrate the Lord's table, we do look backward, yes, to the way that Christ's body was broken and his blood was spilled for us, but we also look to the future when we will share this banquet with our shepherd in the new creation, when the flock will be made to lie down in green pastures, contented and secure in the presence of the shepherd. You see, the local flock is a point in time localized expression of a universal reality that's going to be true one day of all people at all times gathered around the throne of God, or at least it ought to be. So if we're going to fulfill our purpose as the flock of God in 2021, then Indian Creek Baptist Church must reflect that future gathering. And that leaves us, I think, with some very pointed Some very sharp, relevant applications as we bring this entire sermon series together. So just consider with me this conclusion A healthy flock is a gathered flock. An unhealthy flock is a scattered flock. But a healthy flock is a flock that gathers. A healthy sheep is a sheep that's part of the flock. An unhealthy sheep, a vulnerable sheep, a sheep that's in danger, is a sheep that goes off by himself or herself. I guess sheep are girls, aren't they? (laughs) And Rams too, all right? They need to be with the flock as well. So that leads us to some practical entailments for both shepherds and for sheep. So first of all, let me just talk to the under-shepherds. and I'm speaking primarily to myself and to the elders and to people who have a shepherding function in the home, dads, moms. As I've studied these texts, I've thought thought about their implications, and and I have to admit to you, I have to acknowledge to you that the Spirit of God has convicted me in so many ways in in, in areas where I need to realign my own shepherding priorities to more match the, the priorities of Jesus Christ. Like, I read passages like Jeremiah 23, 4. I will set shepherds over them, and not one shall be missing. Not one. Or Acts 20. Pay attention, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. All. Not some, all. All. Or Luke 15, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 and go after the one? I, I read passages like that, and that they are painful for me to read, friends. And I've made excuses, that person doesn't want to hear from me. But Jesus said that his sheep hear his voice and follow him. So the question is really, am I speaking with the voice of Jesus or with somebody else's voice? If they don't like the voice of Jesus, then they're not his sheep. I've said I'm too busy. But doing what? Am I busy doing the work of a shepherd or am I busy doing this kind of self-important executive manager of things sort of stuff? I've said, I, they, they've been walking with Jesus way longer than I have. My wife is more spiritual than I am. I can't shepherd her. But then I remember what Paul tells Timothy. Don't let people look down on you because you're young. Be an example. I've said, we, at the church, we have programs for this. But is that the example of the apostles who ministered both publicly and from house? To house. Or Jesus, who did take time to get alone and spend time with his father in prayer, but when he saw the crowds and he saw that they were like sheep that didn't have a shepherd, he began to teach them many things. Why don't shepherds shepherd the sheep? It's not because God doesn't give us the tools, it's not because we just can't, it's not because he doesn't give us his spirit. You know, if I'm being honest, the reason why is something like pride or fear or laziness or lack of compassion for them. Is it possible that we all need a regular gut check? and a realignment with the plans and purposes and patterns of the Bible that teach us that these lambs need the watch care of faithful shepherds who vigilantly pay attention to every one of the sheep. And the reason I'm telling you this, folks, is because part of your job as a congregation is to compare what your shepherds are doing with what the Bible teaches. You need to know. And I need that accountability. And I covet your prayers that I and all the elders of Indian Creek Baptist Church might be found faithful in our shepherding task. But friends, if a healthy flock is a gathered flock, then there are also applications for all of us as sheep. We live in an age where Christians actually debate, in all seriousness, they actually debate whether tuning in to a service, a live stream online, is actually as good as gathering with the people of God in person. And that's an actual debate. Like, are we serious? Where where pastors claim to shepherd an online flock, people that they're not even near. Technology is a wonderful tool, but it has been wielded by our enemy just as often as it has been used for good. We actually think that we can get all the benefits of the gathered church without actually being physically present. Folks, do not buy that. Don't buy it for a second. We live in an age where we breathlessly and scoldingly remind one another, I can worship God just as well on the hiking trail or at my kitchen table or even on my bathroom floor as you do when you're gathered with the church. Who is saying that you can't worship God at your kitchen table or or, or when you're out at the park or whatever. That is not the point. A healthy flock is a flock that gathers. The building isn't the church, Pastor Jake. No, but that's where people meet. That's where the flock meets at a specific time on a specific day. A healthy flock is a gathered flock. You know, Jake, it's not a sin to visit grandkids on Sunday. It's not a sin to have a ball game on Sunday. It's not a sin to go away on vacation on a Sunday. It's not a sin to work on a Sunday. What is this, middle school? I mean, no offense, middle schoolers. But folks, what if I told you my wife and I had been living in separate homes for the last six six months? And I went to you and I said, you know what? Get get off my back. Because I can love my wife without staying in the same house with her. People do it all the time. You just went on a business trip last month for two weeks. Would you tell me that that's a healthy marriage? (laughs) See, folks, when there's something every... Other week, maybe it's time to stop with the childish rationalization. This is something where, like, if the shoe fits, wear it, right? But you've got to at least try it on. One week, it's someone's birthday. The next week, you got a soccer game. The next week, you're going out of town for a few days. The next week, you have to finish up that home improvement project. The next week, it's opening day. The next week, it's, it's raining, and you don't want to get out of bed. The next week, it's sunny, and you... You just won't get another chance to go, you know, to the cabin at the mountains or whatever until next year. You say, I went to church one Sunday last month. I didn't get very much out of it. (laughs) That's like the person who went on a diet one day last week and didn't lose any weight. I went to the gym once last month. It didn't do anything. just made me feel sore. By the way, when you choose not to participate in the gathering of God's people, you can't use your spiritual gifts to build up the body. People get used to you not being around. They learn there's some people they can count on and there's some people they can't count on to be around for them. And they adjust. You say, Jake, you're right, something needs to change. Let me just give you four practical points of application. And, folks, I really, my desire is not to be harsh with anybody. I'm just asking you to do business with the Lord about some of these things. But let me give you four practical takeaways. First of all, priority. If we're going to be a healthy flock, then we have got to reach the point, folks, we've got to reach the point where the normal garden variety Every day, gathering of the people of God takes priority even over the special other things of life. Let your family know that unless you're sick, you're going to gather with God's people at 10.45 a.m. on Sunday mornings. It it might take time. They will get the picture. Uh, Leaving it as an open question week after week after week is not helping you. It's not helping your spouse. It's not helping your children. It's not helping anybody. Secondly, priority preparation. Leave yourself time on Saturday to prepare for Sunday. Do a load of laundry. Make sure you've got something to wear. It doesn't have to be anything special. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. Just something. Go to bed at a reasonable hour on Saturday night. You don't have to be out partying on Saturday night. Don't eat a huge breakfast on Sunday morning if you know it's going to make you tired on on Sunday morning. Don't drink a lot of coffee so that you'll have to go out at the second point in the sermon and go to the bathroom. Drink a little less coffee. I mean, just prepare a little bit. Preparation. Thirdly, participation. God has given each of us spiritual gifts for the building up of the body, and spectator is not one of those gifts. You will find that if you participate, if you identify and use your gifts for the building up of the body, that you also will be built up. And I know that sometimes it's hard to find out where do I fit. And if that's you, please, please, please talk to your CG leader. Talk to one of the elders. Work through this with another believer that you trust so that you can find a way to be a part of what God is doing. Fourth, perseverance perseverance. God leads us through seasons of difficulty. He leads us through these dark valleys. God doesn't do that because there's something wrong with you or because he doesn't love you as much as he loves the next person. The reason God lets us go through these dark times is because he does love us. He does it for our good because that is what grows us in our faith. A tested faith is a solid, secure faith. And so don't give up. Persevere. Priority preparation, participation, perseverance. And what you'll find is that the more that you abandon the thinking of the world in these matters and the more you embrace the thinking of what the Bible teaches, the more profitable the gathering of the flock will be for you. But here's what it's going to take. It's going to take faith. Like, I act on the basis of something that I believe even though I can't actually see in the immediate future or with my physical eyes that that's going to benefit me. I'm going to operate by faith because of what God says in his word and because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not just on the basis of what I can see and feel in the here and now. That's faith. And in order for us to live as God's sheep, we must live by faith. I can't always see what the shepherd is doing, but I know he cares for me. I can't always see the benefits of obedience, but I trust him to know better than I do. That's faith. And folks, in a a moment here, we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to celebrate the table of the Lord. And as we make a transition to the Lord's table, that's what this symbolic meal is all about. We celebrate it by faith. I mean, there's nothing special, particularly about a crunchy cracker and a little cup of grape juice. But what it does for us is it reminds us in our minds and in our hearts that there is a a day when a great banquet will be laid out in the presence of our enemies when we dwell in the house of the Lord. And we will be able to share that unbroken fellowship with our shepherd as we gather with the flock. And so folks, if you need to repent of something, repent. If you need to confess something, just confess it to the Lord. But let's, in this moment, go into this time of celebration knowing that our Good Shepherd loves us, that he protects us, that he leads us, that he feeds us, that he knows us, and that he wants one day to gather us. And that this expression is just a little reminder that that day is coming, and that reality is going to be more real than anything that captures our attention and our affections in the here and now. Would you pray with me? Father, the presence of your rod and your staff, your protection and your guidance and your discipline is not always painful, it's not always pleasant, but sometimes painful. But, Father, it's a comfort to us. And I pray that as we go through this time of of response, that your spirit would work, that there would not be a a root of bitterness springing up and corrupting the hearts of many, but that we would allow your word to do its work and, and cause us to be open and exposed before you, the one with whom we have to do. Father, we pray for your forgiveness and for your spirit and for your guidance and your protection and your, your guiding hand. We pray that you would prepare us for the celebration of this symbolic meal. In Jesus' name, amen.